I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode 10 of season 1, featuring special guest Rebecca Christian on Black Lives. Today's episode was originally recorded on April 12, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whip and Stock Publishers, who published my 2015 book, Folk Phenomenology, Education and Study and the Human Person. Give us this day, daily prayer for today's Catholic, the Institute for Christian Socialism, building a movement of the ecumenical Christian left, Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia, Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions, where Peter is, there is the church, the Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos, and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for Black Catholics. Black Catholic Messenger was also the featured sponsor for last week's episode and will be the featured sponsor for next week's episode as well. I'm so grateful to have their support for Folk Phenomenology. In last week's episode, I pointed you towards their uh, about statement, their history and vision uh, piece at their website. And this week, I would like to encourage you to take a look uh, or a listen, as it were, to their podcast. They have several episodes posted, and I think it's a further introduction into the range and scope and identity and mission of this truly important and, to my knowledge, singular uh, publication in the Catholic Church in the United States of America. So please show your support to Black Catholic Messenger, and uh, uh, you can find their link, uh, as always, in the show notes. Please find uh, not only their website, uh, but also the links to all of our wonderful sponsors in the show notes. Um, and be sure to take a look at them and support them. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and maybe leave a review or drop a tip, or you can also put in a rating. You can also find Folk Phenomenology on social media with dedicated accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. In today's episode, we have a conversation with Rebecca Christian, a doula, and also a black Catholic who has a story to tell about a trip to Ghana, a trip that involves not only diasporic African-American identity, but also takes us into, you might say, the not only the, the historical genealogy of black lives, but also in, in a deeper way, I would say, into the very meaning of what 
what matters about black lives when we say black lives matter. This isn't only a trip into the past, but in many ways a trip into the present, a trip to the place of the passing of W.B. Du Bois, a trip to a distinctly, tragically, even perversely Catholic place, and a trip that interfaces and intertwines with Rebecca's vocation as a black doula, as a mother to mothers. This is an episode that I think deepens and enriches our sense of the world, in particular a world that is in need of renewal and of remaking, of creating and recreating, always out of love of the world, always with delight. Dilexit mundum. Today on Folk Phenomenology, we have Rebecca Christian with us. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Sam. You know, um, when I invited you onto the show, um, I was primarily, and I'm still really interested to hear about your work as a doula, but whenever you uh, corresponded with me, uh, this was in the midst of uh, some public writing and speaking and thinking that I was doing out loud. And you l- told me that you had a story to share uh, that interfaced a bit with some of my, uh, my, my recent essay uh, that I wrote regarding um, the transatlantic slave trade and chattel slavery and whatnot. And so, you know, uh, how about you just get us started with your story and, uh, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, so I am from San Diego, California, born and bred. Um, I grew up kind of in like a mixed household because like my parents um, separated when I was young and we moved in with some extended family. Um, And so I kind of straddled two worlds between I was going to like a black Catholic church and I also went to the attached school in San Diego. But in my, um, in my house, my aunts and my uncles were part of a sort of like small black church that kind of like moved in and out of our house sometimes and like into other places. And so I kind of grew up going to, uh, growing up as a Catholic and as a black Catholic in that particular tradition, but also in um, like the black Protestant church as well. So that was, you know, interesting um would that have been more like ame holiness pentecostal no non-denominational just like open up a bible and we're just gonna like do whatever yeah (laughs) cool um and then i went to catholic school for the majority of my life i grew up in a very sports driven family myself and all my cousins played basketball um i went to uh, catholic high school on a basketball scholarship until I dropped it because I knew I wanted to do arts and entertainment. And so I did my last two years of high school at an arts, a public arts school before I went to film school uh, in LA. I went to Loyola Marymount, which is a Jesuit college. Yeah. Worked in the industry for a few years, took a break, uh, had a corporate job working for a defense contractor, which was super random. Okay. <laughs> Um, and then got laid off in 2000s, early 2016, 
and then started a business as a doula, which is what I still am. I'm a professional doula and a lactation counselor. As of last year, I got that certification. Um, so yeah, it's all very random, um, but that is my life. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And this story you were telling me had to do with a, 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 a visit or a trip you were on, is that right? Yeah, so in 2017, in October, I went with my mom and about 20 other um, the group, uh, travel group. Uh, everyone was African-American. The trip was sponsored by um, the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, which is where one of my mom's best friends works. And we all went to Ghana in West Africa. Uh, we flew into Accra, which is the capital, and took like kind of like a tour bus pretty much all around the country. We started in Accra, went to um, the Volta region, which is where um, there's like lots of like hiking. We went on a safari, um, and then the climax of the tour was going to visit Cape Coast Castle, which was the British-held... Um, fort where they loaded slaves onto the slave ships and we also went to elmina castle which is kind of like down the way it's like a 10 minute drive um and that was the portuguese held castle where they held enslaved peoples before they put them on the ships to go to their final destinations wow yeah and and of course the the um I mean, I, I don't like invoking the history. Uh, some people accuse me of this, and some people, in fact, even, I guess, cite it sympathetically. But I, 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 don't, I don't like using history as a kind of race to the moral bottom of the barrel, like to, like, you know, who's the worst person here? Because I think sometimes people can use that kind of historical, chronological thing as, like, like who's actually responsible for starting this? And... It's a way to offload responsibility of sorts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, um, the, uh, the the ship that was uh, traveling from Portugal to Veracruz, Mexico, and was intercepted by English privateers, and it, that brought the twenty or odd enslaved peoples to the shores of Virginia. Um, I mean, that 1619 story, which is in some sense the genesis of, of the American, in the sense of the United States of America, American institution of, 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 of shadow slavery, um, that literally was an intercept moment in an already established uh, transatlantic slave trade between uh, the Iberian Union by that time. So at that time, Portugal and Spain were kind of doing it together. Um, But before the Iberian Union in Iberia, the Portuguese, even before Columbus sailed to the Americas, the Portuguese were already in the Canary Islands and doing all this. So that was, um, that's what I was writing about whenever you mentioned uh, this account. I wonder if you you might tell me a bit more of what you saw and kind of filling in uh, your experience there, if you feel okay with that. Yeah, I mean, the whole reason that I brought it up was because I know you are a student of Du Bois, and Du Bois retired in Ghana. 
Um, and so actually That's on true. like That's day, true. I want to say day two of the trip, we went to uh, his home there, which has been turned into a museum. And it's, it's uh-huh. really cool if you're ever able to go because they have like all of his like his academic robes. They have a library there. Um, and it's like it's literally just a converted house and it's not the same as I would say like one of the museums here. Like if you were going to like DC or wherever to see some of these um, historic homes that are like really carefully preserved. It's like I could walk up into the boy's <laughs> house and just take books off the shelves, which is like wow. really wild, which I didn't do, but I did take a selfie. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they have like a little memorial there. Um, you can take a tour where they kind of explain, like you can see where you can sit at his desk. Um, and that was, was really cool. And just to fill in information for people who may not know, um, yeah. again, Ghana is one of, it's really was the main place where most of enslaved people were trafficked through. So the enslaved people weren't necessarily Ghanaian, but that's just where the, um, that's where the forts were. So that's where people went through. And so Ghana is very special to African people, the diaspora all across the world, but especially in America, because Ghana was the first country to African country to gain independence. And it also has ties to the civil rights movement and beyond Du Bois. Um, Malcolm X lectured there. Uh, Maya Angelou actually moved her son to to Ghana and they lived there for a few years. I actually just picked up a memoir of hers that I'm working through. Um, And so Ghana has just like this special place in all African people's hearts, but especially African-American. And so it was cool to travel there, not only for the first time, just to touch the motherland as like an African person who is the descendant of slaves, um, but to go with a group of all black people, most of whom were also Catholic, and it was sponsored by um, the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. So, yeah, wow, yeah, you know, uh, it's. <laughs> I feel embarrassed that you now that you mention it, I um, I had forgotten. Uh, Du Bois. It's. It was only the last two years of his life, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I have to say though, um, you know. Within the variety of opinion of uh, of approaches, everything from you know Black Reconstruction to the Harlem Renaissance and to the Civil Rights Movement, because um, there's very different versions of the Back to Africa, uh, mm-hmm. you know, discussion. So I tend to think of like Marcus Garvey, for instance, or certain like Rastafarian. Uh, versions of that, but then you also have the like overtly stone cold racist uh, dispossession and displacement arguments, right? That come around. Um, I find the I find I find the sort of the Du Bois resting place in Ghana at the age of ninety five. It's within I think the poetics of that back to Africa, but it also raises for me all of the difficulty and all of the contested ideas that come with that i wonder if you don't mind thinking and sorting through some of that at least to to add some complexity because one thing i would hate is to give a sort of naive impression of 
the diasporic relationship between Africa, African-Americans, the diaspora around the world, right? It's it's a tough yeah. subject, no? Yeah, I mean, I remember we, we flew out of Chicago, but... Um, we the trip and mostly the people were based in milwaukee which is where my mom is originally from and i went to go stay at my grandparents house for a couple days to say hi um before we left to go to chicago to fly to amsterdam and then to accra and like my grandfather like didn't really get it he was just kind of like well what like why do you want to why do you want to go and like to be honest i the, the trip we went on um it was a gift for my mom because my mom had retired and she okay. kind of just called me one day and said, we're going to Ghana. And I was like, okay, whatever. So I didn't really, <laughs> I, to be honest, like I wasn't really thinking about any of this until we got there. Um, yeah. And again, I'm a doula and like people are always giving birth. I'm always very busy. And so I like stopped a, a contract uh, with a client and like, went home and got on a plane to go to Milwaukee and the next thing I knew I was in Ghana. So I didn't even really have a chance to any, like assimilate any of this information until I actually touched down and it was like, oh, I'm actually touching, you know, the homeland for the first time yeah. in generations. Um, and so that was something that, um, you know, we definitely talked about while we were on the trip, but I think I'm still processing what that means um and we're planning to go back covid uh covid permitting later this year sure. and so like i feel like the second time that i go i'll be uh, able to really like <laughs> have the like true spiritual experience um yeah yeah i mean you know i mean thinking about it now because i mean to me like there's so much about that discourse and how fraud it is at times and and how multi-sided it can be and how co-opted it can be in other cases that i get maybe like a little bit overly cautious but when i think about it a little bit more just at a like a um slightly less contextualized level i'm thinking of like pilgrimage like the holy land you know mm -hmm. um i have a friend of mine from from israel who uh, he's a secular Jew, and he says, yeah, we love to watch the buses of all the Christians come out and, and get all emotional and all that, and we think it's really funny, you know? <laughs> um, and for him, there is something about that nostalgia that strikes him also as odd. And it, I think for, for in a lot of cases, it's not only that he's not Christian, but he's from Israel, right? And so, you know, the Jordan River, I'm told, I've never been, is not very impressive, I guess, to look at right um but i'm thinking about people's like attachments to like homelands and stuff you know and when we think about like you know irish america i'm thinking about the sopranos episode where they go back to italy and they <laughs> kind of like they don't really like it very much you know and and of course i'm mexican-american which is maybe here i'm projecting right so i'm mexican-american with no with no real like like my family's never left Mexico to come to, to America. They were in America before America, mm -hmm. before the United States of America took over the lands that at the time were Mexico. And so maybe I'm resenting a little bit the homeland <laughs> assumption or the diasporic thing there. Um, but um, 
Yeah, this brings up a lot of stuff about the kind of the, the lines between history and memory, but then the way that we create our, our identities out of this rubble, maybe, of, of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I, I was definitely raised in a very like conscious family. I was raised to be proud to be black, but I don't recall ever... Um, I don't recall us ever really trying to connect that to Ghana, to like the continent of Africa. Outside of the time, maybe that we once celebrated Kwanzaa, but we never did it again because celebrating Kwanzaa is actually kind of complicated and long and it's right after Christmas. (laughs) I remember Uh my uncle being like, this is not an extension of Christmas. You are not getting any more gifts. And yeah, like we never did it ever again. Sure. Um, but I will say one thing this is bringing up is that um, so the leader of the trip, um, her name's Antoinette. She's one of my mom's um, childhood friends, and she is Ghanaian. She's a first generation American, and sure. her father, in particular, used to do um, rites of passage in the neighborhood for black kids to kind of help uh-huh. connect them to. I don't even think it was really to try to connect them to Ghana or whatever. It's just American culture lacks those things in terms of rites of passage. I mean, to connect this to my doula work, I mean, the whole reason that I am a professional doula is because we don't have a culture that like really supports families and teaches parents and in particular mothers how to be a mother. So the word doula is Greek for servant of women. Um, I do both birth and postpartum work. Postpartum work, um, we usually describe it as mothering mothers, like I am a mother to mothers. And so that is essentially what he was trying to do um, with those kids until he died. Yeah. Wow, this is really opening things. I'm just, uh, I mean, I apologize. Some of these interviews are pretty bouncy in terms of topics. But uh, you've got a few different lines out there right now. I'm just recalling now that Du Bois, whenever he talks about the problem of the color line, he actually, um, I mean, that's so like the color line, like the veil, like double consciousness, like these (laughs) concepts are just, they stand in, you know, and they almost create their own imaginaries. But he's not someone who lacks specificity at all. I mean, he wrote The Philadelphia Negro, which is just like specific, specifics upon specific numbers, graphs, economics, you know, stuff like that. Whenever he writes about the color line, though, and the souls of black folk, he writes about um, the problem of the 20th century is a problem of the color line. That's the, the, the line that everybody knows. In relation of the darker to the lighter races of men in Asia and Africa and America and the islands of the sea. So, I mean, Du Bois actually, in this case, has is, is not necessarily talking about uh, specifically American uh, problem of the 20th century. Like, he has a global understanding of the color line. Um, and that kind of... To be honest, I think in some senses, because of the significance of Du Bois within the particular history of the United States of America, he can kind of be be parochialized, even out of affection, you might say. And so the fact that you're like reminding me here that he he actually went to his rest mm-hmm. in Ghana 
And he was a Pan-Africanist. We have to admit this much, right? He was <laughs> very open about that sensibility. And I know the Pan-African ideal and, 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 you know, the dream, so to speak, has had its own struggles and, and things like that. Um, but how do you understand, I guess, maybe the problem of the color line in this globalized sensibility that you've helped me think about in relation to this way you've conceptualized your work as a doula all the way back to its Greek etymology? I mean, that's very rich, too. I wonder if you could keep opening these vistas for me. Um... Two, two things that may not necessarily answer the question, but I, what you were saying jogged a memory of the first day that we got there, when we got to the first hotel, um, it's kind of like when you go to Hawaii, like they had like coconuts and there were like dancers and stuff, like they were like welcoming us and we were gonna have this welcome dinner. Um, but when we walked into the lobby, they had the news on. Okay. And, this is in 2017 so trump was still in office and sure. i want to say it was like a state of the union or something but like trump was on tv and i remember like like we all get there we're like rolling our <laughs> luggage in and then someone was like here. so can you can you turn that off because we're not we're not here for that <laughs> we're yeah. here to forget where we came from right now mm. um <laughs> and like i say i mentioned that because like i i also remember like I think we, we were out shopping one day and someone said like welcome home which uh, was like a really kind um yeah. but it was jarring to, to hear someone say that um yeah and at the same time what we time, say to catholics you know on easter yeah yeah right? and I, I, I like appreciated that but it was jarring because when you walk around and we were in a crawl when this happens you can definitely see the effects of colonialization and like just how things are named um sure and like i was very conscious that i am an american person walking sure. around in west africa like yeah i'm black but i'm not an african i am an american and i'm being treated right. that way i'm being treated as a westerner so that, you know, when we think about like Pan-African and like the spirituality of all of this, it's like, I can't change the fact that I'm an American and I'm used to a certain way of living and I speak English and, you know, it is what it is. Sure, <laughs> um, sure. At the same time, you know, when we went to go visit the castles, they have very similar layouts because they're forts. Um, and they each have areas that are cells that are above ground because most the the main cells where they would keep enslaved people um, are underground. Okay. But they each have these smaller cells above ground, which is where they keep where one of them where they would keep the rebellious quote unquote enslaved women, and then across from that is where they would keep the pregnant quote unquote uh, enslaved women. So. And the, what the um, the tour guide explained to us is that like some of them would stay as kind of like concubines, some of them um, would be put on the ships anyway. Sometimes they would take they would separate the children, um, yada yada. I don't even remember what the rest of what he said was because the tour was moving, but I stayed physically in that cell for a while because I just kind of wanted to hang out there. 
Um, and I did pray when I was in there. And I, I just had this like very visceral um, sense of like my responsibility as someone who is essentially a mother to mothers. And I'm obviously yeah. black. I'm one of the few black doulas um, in my city. And so I work with a lot of black families. And like, yeah. you know, sometimes the conversations that I have, well, not sometimes, the conversations that I have with black families, especially now in the last few years, because I became a doula in 2016, um, yeah. there's always the normal stuff of like, let's talk about how you want to have your baby. But there's also t- the talk about we are black people living in this time in America. And I mean, at the time of this recording, we're in the middle of the Chauvin trial. You know, that's right. And I have, right. I have, I'm going to go see black clients this week. And I know we're going to talk about the fact that Dante Wright just got murdered because that's the way that it is with black families. Um, and when yep. you're a black mother pregnant about to give birth yes. to a child, yes. Um, these are things that you have to think about. Um, and one thing that I try to explain, especially to other birth workers is that, you know, when, if you're working with a black family, you have to realize this might be the first time that we're able to have a baby in full peace and intention and joy. I mean, I'm in my early 30s. If I look at, if I look at my my mom, my grandparents, like my direct line of ancestry, I'm the first person who wasn't born during segregation or Jim Crow yeah. or Reconstruction or enslavement. Yeah. You know, so when I, God willing, get married and have a baby, I'm going to continue that line. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, oh, I'm, you know, when I read Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me, I, it lit me up in a number of ways, including that whole (laughs) Pan-African, his Mecca experience at Howard, right? Like, and I remember, I think I, I think I finished, uh, I think I read it actually on a plane, Columbus, Ohio, where I was on my way to, to a symposium at my where at Ohio State, where I did my PhD, and um, one of the about the time I, I didn't know what they were actually recruiting him, and so he works there now. But Winston Thompson, a dear friend of mine, um, I mean, I think I emailed. No, I guess I didn't read it on the plane because I emailed it ahead of time, being like, I just read Tanisi Coates, and and we need to talk. Um, and, and Winston is black and, and, and you know and I remember talking to Winston and I wanted to talk about like the book like I wanted to t- get into the arguments you know I wanted to get into the 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 details I wanted to put it up against the black intellectual tradition up against Baldwin all these things and all he could say was that like you know I just had a kid And that and that's a, a letter between a father and a son, and it's essentially a letter about how to be a man in the United States of America at this time, and how to raise a son. And that's all, like, like that's all he, for him, it was like he had no room in his imagination to talk about all these other things I, I wanted to get on about. And at the time, I think I was probably a little bit like, okay, like you know. And I remember the next person I went to talk to. Another good friend of mine here, a colleague, in his case from from Sierra Leone, exact same thing. Like I'm not really ready to talk about that book like that, Sam, 
because I'm having a son. He's due in a few months. And I got to think about what kind of a world, you know. Uh, and, and, and you know what? It's taken me, it might literally still be taking me in vivo right now here to come to some external ability to begin to understand that whenever we talk about intergenerational, cross-generational, systemics, structural, whatever fancy words you want to use. But when we talk about the endurance of an institution like that castle and that place, all the way to the work that you're doing in the context that we're talking in now, like, this is real. This is what it means for racism or for white supremacy to endure. Um, and then one, just one other thing that you mentioned, and 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 I, and it's just kind of like stunning me in my tracks is, um, it's something that someone else noted whenever I ran uh, the essay I put out earlier. They said you you missed a spot here. Um, the specific and extremely articulate, uh, you know, Malcolm X famously said, "No one is more disrespected than the black woman," right? But the very specific and the very attuned violence uh, and exploitation of black women. Uh, and one of the dates I think about a lot is the date in the United States whenever they uh, made the transatlantic slave trade illegal without ending shadow slavery. And one of the effects it had practically within the shadow logic was it turned the well, it turned reproduction of, 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 of enslaved peoples into, it raised its sort of economic place within the shadow logic, you know, which was already happening, right? Which was already existing. And we can talk about Thomas Jefferson in whatever cases we want. But the specific role that bringing new life, right? We talk, I mean, within at least Catholic culture, I think sometimes there's almost a, uh, a fetishized attachment to new life and and life and stuff that is in some ways deserved as a as a recognition of the dignity and the beauty and the fullness of of, of human beings and of our life and our communities and our families and all that. But it's fairly uh, calloused to account for questions of life. I mean, we don't even have to talk about death. Here <laughs> to get into how how like how th- you know how thick this is after you know a guy just got murdered yesterday for you know being pulled over and the middle and called of his trial. mother and yeah. called his mother yeah and called his mother just as a person who's on trial called for his mother during the eight minutes and forty six seconds that uh, a, a policeman had his knee on his neck I yeah. mean calling for mother life you know here we are I mean um, I'm sorry I just I I'm I don't think I have a lot of articulate things to say here, but I would ask again if you could continue to kind of walk with me here and talk with me here a bit more about this, because I think you're uh, just renewing some of these paths and some of these openings that I, you know, even I would say coats in this very masculine discussion between a son and a man and and, and father. Uh, I'm now even detecting like, wow, I, you know. I need to read Between the World and Me by 
by a black woman, you know, and those books mm-hmm. exist in Morrison's books and uh, Maya Angelou's books, but they often fictionalize, right? They're not as uh, direct, perhaps. I don't know. What, what do you have to say here? Yeah. Um, I, I should also note that it's today's first day of Black Maternal Health Week, which is usually like a social media week where um, like birth workers and doctors and midwives, we usually discuss like whatever legislation um, is being passed. Because so for people who don't know, um, in America, the black maternal mortality rate is significantly higher. Black women, even when you wait for career, marriage, education, economic status, she's three to five times more likely to die um, than a white woman. A lot of this has to do with uh, systemic racism and bias that is built into our uh, healthcare system. We don't have enough time to get into like the history of like obstetrics and like experimentation on enslaved women or anything like that. But um, yeah. I mean, it, it rears its ugly head. I see it all the time at work. Um, there have been studies that have shown that there are still, um, there's still race, racial science, false racial science is being used. There's still perceptions that black people, black women don't experience pain in the same way, which is completely wrong and ludicrous. Right. Um, but I note that because like that's always the context that I bring to like any of these conversations. It's like we can talk about history, you know, we can talk about enslavement and all that stuff, but the effects of all of that are still very real and happening today. Right. And it's your work life. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to explain sometimes that like it it's it's fundamentally different serving black families than it is white families because there's always this like overhanging context and I always have to be like extra on guard and I have to speak very carefully to my newly pregnant clients um, because sometimes people will call me and ask me for advice like where should I give birth what doctor do you recommend and sometimes you know people have already selected a hospital where I know the staff and I know they're not really that great and uh, I have to have the conversation uh, where it's like, it's not just about statistics. It's not just about the little brochure that they gave you. I am telling right. you there's other places where you need to go for your safety. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, um, there's another part of your comment, and I'm going to be speaking here. You know, I'm such I'm, I'm such an academic. I'm such a nerd. I just, you know, I, I keep... It's necessary. We need I keep, them. <laughs> I, I'm glad you feel that way. But I, I feel um, like it's always just, you know, my crutch is the book, you know. And so I just got Jesse McCarthy's new book, Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul? Uh, and I haven't read it yet. It's his new book of essays. And it's kind of striking out in some sense, against the Afro-pessimists. Um, and and there was a part of what you said, and I'm not trying to do the whole, like, you know, let's lighten the mood or anything, but it's... The, the part you said about, like, you being the first generational uh, person within your own bloodlines and milk lines and lifelines that is... Uh, you know, born into a society that isn't 
overtly, completely, institutionally through Jim Crow and its predecessors, uh, racist. Um, as significant as that is, you know, like his his argument, according to the New York Times that I read, which instigated <laughs> me to buy his collection, is essentially that like we we can't try to trivialize uh, things like that, but we also have to be able to within a proportional response uh take some kind of responsibility with some kind of hope for the next generation and the one to come and the one after that right um and uh and i mean he's threading a line because you all there's obviously those who in bad faith um will use the whole get over it (laughs) Uh, idea and i feel like what you've presented so clearly is that like no there's no getting over right now like there's no evidence for it and at the same time to give birth to a child today is different than giving birth to a child in the jim crow south just like there were differences you know in the 50s or in the 40s between if you gave birth to a child in the north versus the south you know just as you know the that that famous you know line you know separating cincinnati from kentucky you know would have been the 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 freedom line so to speak so we do have these lines right and there are these markers that i think do give us a sense of hope a sense of progress a sense of striving and at the same time when we look at the real lived conditions of things i mean i guess maybe what i'm asking you is like how do you work between hope giving life helping people literally give life um but doing so in a way that's also not naive or pollyannish or or you know like you know there's joy i i think right in 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 having and bringing children and and creating a family and at the same time there's a need for you know my tiniest version of this and I, no, I'm not even going to throw it in there because it's not even comparable. Um, that's the question, I guess. Like, how do we work between hope and despair? I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, and like you know, you usually want to tell people that uh, the black maternal mortality statistic, everyone kind of like goes to shock and awe. But like in context, America also has pretty much the highest general maternal mortality rate um for a lot of reasons a lot of it has to do with our health care system and the way that we do um birth and the fact that we don't really do postpartum care the way they do in lots of other countries um and i mentioned that because you know to to recall what you said with the malcolm x quote you know that black women are the most disrespected women in america that's true we're also the answer um because what fixes the black maternal mortality rate just on an evidence-based systemic level also fixes the general maternal mortality rate so and when i think about you know justice and solutions it's like yes i i mean i'll say it like as a black person i think about black people first but what usually resolves our problems resolves everybody else's problems as well i mean voting rights are for everyone they're not just for black people (laughs) no absolutely yeah that's been difficult you know i mean you know as (laughs) 
as a Mexican, as Mexican American, Chicano, Latino, whatever you want to, whatever word they come up for me um, <laughs> at this point. Not just our community. I don't want to speak sociologically. Like, you know, there's there's a resistance, for instance, to... Like, I remember, and I even remember, like... Uh, so I played in a band where I, I found myself oftentimes being the only non-black person in a room. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was really difficult for me. Um, and my bandmates had, I think, a lot of sympathy for me in it. But, like, it was difficult for me for, for the fact that I presented in those places, not even as, like, a passing black guy, but I presented as white, right? Um, and and so when people would be like, wow, that white guitar player really has some soul, my drummer would always come and be like, he's not white, he's Mexican. And the response... He's my white-skinned cousin. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, one of the funniest things about that, though, was that... Uh, this happened also in the church I played in. Pastor Carter would, he loved to talk about how like we're not a black church because he wanted because we had, we had some white, white people who came to church yeah. and, and he wanted to show them that they were loved and you know, and he and I would argue afterwards. I was like, I actually think it's important for you to be a black church, and he's like, No, that's not what I mean, you know. Um, but he would be like, We're not a black church. We're not a white church. We're we're here for black people and white people. And and then he would lean into the mic and be like, and Mexican people pointing at me in the band, right? <laughs> And uh, the funniest thing about that is, inevitably, after service, he told me this. I, I wasn't there for it, but I would see it happening uh, at like family reunions and stuff when, when the band would play. Is that people would be like, oh, why would you call him Mexican? Like, in that, like, a little bit, like, rude, you know? And he'd be like, no, Mexican is not a slur. It's actually just like, you know, like we would. <laughs> and what I'm trying to say is that, like, there's a funny um, thing in privileging uh, blackness and black lives and and, and opposing, uh, not washing out anti-racism completely, is that, you know, communities like mine, and this is a part of why I actually wrote that essay initially, um, we can sometimes feel that if we enter into too much solidarity, right, with other communities, indigenous communities, black communities, uh, given Atlanta a few weeks ago, you know, Asian communities or whatever, that this is some kind of a, of a, a like a limited set of, of of oppression resources, and we don't want to like spend all of our, you know, and the lesson I've learned a lot, both in my own life, uh, in my own heart, and my own conscience, but also more structurally and systemically, socially. Is that I think you're absolutely right here that the fight for justice, you know, anywhere can be the fight for justice everywhere if you see it that way. And I mean, King, for instance, turned his eyes from civil rights after after it got signed to Vietnam. And he argued that the same exact struggle that he had fought for for his people was one that needed to be extended all the way out into. I mean, he had that global mindset that Du Bois had that we talked about earlier. Um yeah, I mean, even when you, like, I mean, earlier you mentioned uh, reparations. Like, to me, you know, that, that conversation can get so muddy because I think people, and especially white people, um, it's like they want to it's like they want to hold on to this thing that they don't even really have. And that, you know, if we try to repair systemically, that they're going to be 
losing something or whatever. And, and to me, it's like, well, even if they did lose something, isn't that still good? I mean, we still have to do penance when we yeah. confess our sins. I mean, oh, yeah. there's there's one God, there's one justice, there's one truth. I mean, when I think about, you know, any one of these police murders, it's like two people were affected, especially in the situations where it's like, you know, like a mental health crisis. It's like, it's also an injustice to send an untrained officer to deal with someone having a mental health crisis and they end up murdering someone. Right. That's also an injustice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean the, um, for me, this is where like the, not just the language. I mean, the language actually is super clarifying for me, but more deeply, like, like the, the real discussion of sin and the effects of sin and the structures of sin and the reality of sin and and that and the fact that whenever we talk about sin we are talking about a, a true manifestation of evil to me these are this is a moral not only vocabulary but this is this to me has to be the 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 tenor of the discussion with respect to racism and whenever we look at it deeply and morally just like you said the um, the victims are, morally speaking, um, not only not the only, nor the worst moral victims. I, I'm flirting with, with controversy here. Like, are you really mm-hmm. trying to say that Chauvin is morally more uh, victimized b- by his sin than, than Floyd? Well, Cain, where is your brother? Right. Um, yeah, to an extent, he is. You know, and and, and I and, and the and the point then is that like black liberation, anti-racism that is anti-white supremacist is here to liberate. We could say on this analysis, um, people who have literally identified their own flesh and blood through this central core of this completely discredited morally sociologically and everything i other idea of the modern concept of race with whiteness at its center people have adopted that at the point to where it's existential for them it's who they think they are black liberation is for them too you are here to be liberated from your whiteness i don't know this is might be too crazy you may not want to sign on no i i no oh no i've 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 said that and i've also had i mean this is like a separate podcast but i've also had conversations about like should white people continue to identify as white because to me that's that's not the same thing as um being proud of whatever your ethnic heritage is and there's no such thing as a white nation yeah you know and the only ones that have tried to exist i doubt you'd want to be a member of them i mean (laughs) i mean why would you choose like you know you want to migrate (laughs) you want to immigrate yeah and I mean, like, it's it's a Monday when we're recording this, but over the weekend, there was, like, you know, like a White Lives Matter uh, mm-hmm. uh, rally. In Seattle. It was actually technically across the country, but there was also one in Orange County, which is not okay. just one county up from me. Um, and, like, there were, like, fires being passed around by the KKK, and they do show yeah. up in uniform every now and then. Yeah, we yeah, actually yeah, have yeah. a contingent down here in San Diego. So it's okay. like... Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things, you know, and actually this is one of the, the, it's an interesting thing, like with the Proud Boys, right? 
Um, uh, so they will have membership of color. Even with Chauvin, they'll be like, one of the mm-hmm. officers standing by was, you know, Asian American or what have you. And, you know, goodness gracious, everyone knows that <laughs> Latinos will play for whatever side we can get on. I mean, it's it's a it's a well-known feature. Um, to me, there's something about that, though, that instead of being a counterfactual to... Uh, the idea that these aren't white supremacists because they have people of color. It's like, no, this is exactly how whiteness works. It's dispersed, and it'll kind of take anyone who, anyone it can get, including an, a, a black apologist on behalf of white supremacists. You know? Um, mm-hmm. Which I think is like the high bar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I want to say, like, the name Candace Owens aloud, but... <laughs> I just did, I guess. Um, you know, but there are people who will who will weaponize that, including, by the way, good faith uh, people of color and black people say it's not really, you know, the person to call out, you know, Clarence Thomas, or whatever, is not going to be a non-black person. Like, we need to take care of our own in some way or another. That, to me, again, is an open discussion, a difficult discussion. Um but in the church, I think it's very difficult because black Catholics, I mean, are, you know, the American church at least has almost no platform for black Catholics to speak at all. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's at least the, the sense I, I get from, you know, there's black Catholics it's- all over our, our kind of contemporary life. But it's the one yeah. unspeakable detail you can't mention, you know, about Kobe Bryant or about. To, I mean, to me, honestly, it feels it feels almost like a, a different denomination in certain huh. respects, and I think that Black Catholic churches often kind of operate on their own because they have to. I mean, I watched a documentary. I can't remember what the name of it is, um, but I watched a documentary last year about a Black Catholic community somewhere in rural somewhere that was essentially abandoned by the archdiocese and they had no priest for like generations but they kept their chapel open they had their own little liturgical service and it's still open today i mean there's there's lots of those kinds of stories you see those across latin america a latin america because oftentimes you know the the afro latin american community and whatever given nation like here, I'm thinking specifically about Honduras, and the, they're called the Guarifanos. Um, you know, the friars will hike up into these villages, but they can only make it once, you know, maybe twice a year to make kind of the rounds and then make it back to their mission and kind of be there and go out. Um, but yeah, they, they, they sustain. In fact, I've thought a lot about that during COVID because in these communities, um, a, a sacramentally celebrated mass by by a priest celebrant is, you know, an annual, if that, event. Um, yeah, and I, I remember, like, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, tweeting about this because people were so incensed about the fact that, like, we couldn't go to mass or whatever. And I was like, well, here's a picture of a boarded up church in the Volta region of Ghana. And like, 
they have masks when the priest can like get on his bike and come from god knows where so everyone suck it up (laughs) yeah i mean you know the the word on the street in the american church if we listen to the doomsday reporters and the chicken littles is that you know catholicism is all but over it's we're on our last uh uh we're on we're in our last gasp um demographic statistical data um tells us that the church is doing its thing everywhere in the world except for western europe and Mm -hmm. And there's even disputed accounts of whether the the church in the U.S. that's supposedly shrinking is even the church or just the white church. Um, and you know, for instance, in like in, in Latin American communities, you know, a lot of times they'll cook their books by saying, "Well, they're not, you know, they're not practicing their faith to the degree that we'd like them to, so they don't get to count in our final numbers, so to speak." Um, but like clearly, the church. Uh, I was reading a, a historian who is making the point that like the if we include all of christianity like the apostles went out into asia minor into north africa into you know afro eurasia you could call that you know the the birthplace of christianity uh he says if you count all the christians and you don't cut it up by the orthodox and the byzantines and all that stuff there's actually never been quantitatively demographically there actually has never been a majority of christians in in europe there's always been more Christians somewhere else other than Europe. The idea of a European Christianity is at least demographically, quantitatively, a fiction. It's never existed from Christ to now. And right now what we're seeing is a church that's that's increasingly a church of the so-called global south. Um, I find that awkward as an American, like, like kind of like you were saying before, like sometimes I feel... Like, oh, yeah, that's my church. And then it's like, oh, no, it's not actually. I live in Canada and I'm from the U.S. <laughs> but what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, like everything you're saying is correct. On the other, I think we're definitely also going through a reckoning, um, specifically with people of color and I think black people in not just Catholic Church, but in Christian churches in general. I mean, there's an exodus, a mass exodus that has been going on sure. for years now. Sure. Um, and I've been discussing this with some people who are in ministry because it's been a struggle for me. Uh, someone who's been a Catholic their entire life, went to yeah. Catholic school, went to Catholic university, theology was my second major. Like, I, it's a struggle for me to go back to mass because of everything that has happened with the pandemic and with racial justice and just how the church has responded um and i say that to say because like one of the things we haven't discussed is like the presence of christianity and specifically catholicism um i think the lack of representation to those um minority faith communities now and also historically. I mean, so like all, so Cape Coast Castle and Elmina Castle are only two of, I wanna say there's like 40 of those castles historically um, in terms of like colonial forts that were used to um, traffic enslaved people among other things. Um, And they all have churches on them. 
Yeah. Like there's, I mean, I have pictures of like Bible inscriptions and, you know, they, they, there was, I think it was Cape Coast Castle where like they showed us one room where it was like, well, something happened with the church or whatever. So they use this lunch room as also their like church room on Sundays. But like Elmina Castle was held by the Portuguese. And so one thing that I didn't realize when I stepped foot on the property was that I was going to see a Catholic church at a fort where enslaved people were kept and not only that but like it's in it's in the square like in the middle and the main dungeons are underneath so it's Mm. like i have to think about hundreds maybe thousands of people being kept underneath while someone is saying above ground above on top wow and so you know when we talk about like the lack of the church's response to so many things today it's like well we can even barely acknowledge what happened in the past it's like they can't really acknowledge the continuation of it in the future in my opinion because i had no idea that i was going to step foot on that property and see a church and it was very very jarring for me yeah and i know for other people as well yeah i mean it's so obvious but I never would have even imagined. I mean, I feel I feel like a fool for not. Like, of course, it has. I mean, Catholics yeah. have chapels in every building. You know, most Catholic homes have a altar or something. Yeah, you know. I mean, in the context of the American, uh, you know, the the Jim Crow South. One thing I I think we have failed to. Um, even begin the process is that like the significance of the symbol of the cross itself has been perverted and inverted where the symbol of a cross is now a part of the american vocabulary of an expression of white supremacy the burning white cross the white cross where you know i i grew up in a neighborhood where we had public posadas and public uh, during Advent, uh, uh, and, and we had public, you know, processions for the, the the stations of the cross, and you would put a wooden cross in front of your house as a crossing point. Well, you can probably tell that like that was a Mexican neighborhood. It was not a. It, there was no black people in that neighborhood. I couldn't. I, I I would probably imagine. I wouldn't have thought of that then. And in some sense, culturally, cultural context here changes the cues. But like thinking about about it now, to put a wooden cross in the front of your own home, <laughs> you know, this yeah, is. And I mean, um, I was gonna say, you know, and all of that is true, and yet we know that the cross is real and when i think about you know how i grew up and my faith now and you know i think about like you know my grandparents were born in what the 20s or 30s so height of jim crow but my grandmother was buried in her knights of saint peter claver uh uniform and her ladies auxiliary team was there serving at her funeral you know, the faith endures. It's still here. Yeah. They can't take it from us. Yeah. I think that, I think in some sense, what, what it makes me realize is that the scandal of the cross is not just like this like supernatural superpower 
contained in this Roman instrument of death. But it's like the the instrument of death, of state execution, of unjust treatment of dispossessed and oppressed people still doesn't strip the Christian meaning of the cross. And no power, whether it's the Roman Empire or white supremacy or any other, you know, power that tries to take that up is going to succeed. And in some sense, there we find the triumph of the cross, right? But it's a triumph that really it doesn't it doesn't necessarily register as triumphalist in this kind of sense of moral exceptionalism it's good no matter what blah 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 it's like no the point is that it's good when it's clearly evil you know the death of god occurred on that instrument you know the terrorism occurred domestic terrorism in this country has occurred through that instrument and yet the cross prevails. That's the triumph of the cross. Yeah. And if it wasn't real, we still wouldn't be here. I still wouldn't be a Christian. I still wouldn't be a Catholic. Yeah. If the triumph of the cross wasn't real. And I mean, I know that I have to, I have to, I have to re, I mean, I mean, thank God for grace that I, that message is continually, <laughs> continually reinforced for me. But I mean, yeah. I, I'm just thinking of like conversations that I've had over the past year with all kinds of people, but even other black people that are still like, how can you still go there? Yeah. And that's the, that's the only answer that I can give them. No, I, 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 I mean, I, I had a question that to be completely and perfectly honest, I'm not afraid to go on the record to say that it like, it, it made me angry. Uh, recently at an event I was speaking at where someone hearing uh, my very second and third hand historical accounting of the relationship between the transatlantic slave trade, shadow slavery, and Roman Catholicism kind of asked like, well, is there a way we can tell people this, which is obviously true, without doing any like collateral damage to the church like not like is there a way we can talk about this without you know ruining people's faith um with you know and in my mind to be honest i lost i lost it i i, I don't remember what i said and at one point i think i was threatening them with like you'll answer before god or some nonsense like that. i mean it's like father father can i make an incomplete confession and can you still give me <laughs> yeah <laughs> like what yeah what kind of question is this yeah but to me in some sense that is a perfect expression of a kind of mendicant and weak and impoverished faith that is so afraid to truly encounter the truth in all of its transcendence but also in all of its imminence and, and say amen to that and instead wants to just like, you know, find the easiest, lowest, most inconsequential amen it can make. And so to me, the, the, like the faith of the American, like so, some people have asked me, you know, I have a friend, he's not Catholic, uh, but he's kind of obsessed with liberation theology, Enrique Dussel mm -hmm. and all this stuff, uh, Quentin. And uh, 
and I'm obsessed with Du Bois. Um, and and he always makes fun of me. He says, "You just want to be black. Let's just come on, just 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 admit it, Sam." And I'm <laughs> like, "Look, bad. okay, if you want to say that I want to be black, then you obsessed with Mexican, Argentinian, Dussel. You just want to be Latin American." And he la- and we have a good laugh, right? We have a we kind of we we toss it back and forth at each other. But people have have sometimes like been like, "What? Why is?" the black catholic church why is the black experience in america why you know including people with with concerns about for instance indigeneity and things and i think here there's a lot to say and we, there's a whole nother episode about the way in which in the institution of slavery actually um worked its way between and across indigeneity and african uh, uh enslavement right those were kind of i see as kind of like a double move of colonialism but all that to say that, like, to me, one of the reasons, one of the strongest reasons, um, one of my mentors, Father Sam Holmesy, he, he, he was a pastor at a black church in Nash, Nashville, and he integrated his church in Ballinger, Texas, that was segregated between whites and Mexicans, um, lived in Chile for, for, for years. And I, I learned a lot of this from him obliquely. I learned it much later when I thought about it. But the reason why I think that our only hope is black Catholics, black Catholic women, like you were saying before, is because that's where that's that's where belief really is. That's where the the amen actually means something. You know, that's you know this last week the the thing to doubting Thomas. You know, blessed are those who have not seen and still mm-hmm. believe. I mean, who has not seen more than than people who have not seen justice? Yeah, and to, to give, like, another facet of the diamond, I mean, I listen to what your friend said, and to me it's like, well, why wouldn't you want to be in relationship with the people who are part of your faith? Because in theory, our church family is more important than, you know, your biological family. We are baptized into one faith. And I think one of the painful realizations that I had last year was just realizing how many people who are part of the same faith as I don't have that same belief. Because it's like, well, why should we be concerned with the plight of black Christians and black Catholics. Well, why wouldn't you be concerned with the plight of your brothers and sisters, no matter where they are? Right. Is it because you don't actually consider black people to be part of the church? Cause that's certainly what it sounds like. Yeah, no, for sure. And Quentin's defense, he's, we just give each other a lot of grief all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, I, someone said something similar to me and I challenged her on that. Okay. Cause it's like, I mean, when you think about like, you know, rolling, um, I was talking the other day to another black Catholic about like which churches are being um, shuttered and like rolled into other churches. Mm. And it's like historically, especially in the 60s, they usually would integrate the white churches. Well, it's like, well, why can't they integrate the black Catholic churches? You could have brought all the white people and bust them into the black neighborhood. Uh-huh. But we had to do it the other way uh-huh. around. Uh-huh. Same thing with the schools. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I want to get into the whole issue of integration, assimilation, segregation, because that is such a... Oh, that is... Maybe we can end on this note. We're not going to be able to get as far as we need to, because, you know, um, it's it's a challenge to our 
in the United States, I'm very, I'm very uh, paranoid actually in Canada. It's the jury is out as to whether I'm white or not up here. Um, <laughs> it's it's so interesting because like in summertime, um, I, I've had a, a South Asian brother or sister um, talk in a way that they're trying to figure out whether you're one of them or not. Mm-hmm. And then when they you reveal that you're not, then things get really interesting because they want you to know, well, because I was almost fooled, you are now integrated in the brown Canadian because <laughs> you're presenting brown, so we're going to keep it brown and we'll just, you know, you got the watch band issue, like all that stuff, you know. Yeah. But in the United States, though, it's not quite as complicated for me and I and that's maybe part of my nostalgia speaking, but, you know, um, uh, integration, I think people so-called white people in America struggle a lot to understand, on the one hand, why integration is necessary and why segregation is bad if communities of color are not only permitted and allowed, but it's celebrated when we have historically black colleges and universities. It's it's Mm -hmm. celebrated when we have you know, very overtly identifying ethnic, for instance, uh, Catholic churches and what have you. And and I, I've always found this on the one hand, um, like in principle, like, okay, this is an interesting, like, you know, philosophical problem maybe. But on the other hand, culturally, it just it ne- it never makes any sense to me. Um, so maybe you could talk well, through kind of how you think through that issue. I mean, it's cultural, but it's also just foundational we have historically black colleges and universities because we couldn't go to the other universities exactly we have black churches because we couldn't go to the other churches exactly so to say that something that was founded um not as you know like an fu or as a tool of uh political marxism as some people like to (laughs) pretend that it is it was for survival where else were we going to go right um and i still think like (laughs) i mean even just the the conversation of like why can't they just go to the white churches? I mean, I bring it back to like, if you thought of me with the same dignity and with the same um, deference that you thought of as people who look like you, well, why can't you come to our churches? You know? Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, and the other thing too is that like, I think the... Catholicism, I believe, uh, can have a really beautiful inflection of cultural specificity uh, in many cases. I'm saying this with some caution because I used to like, I went so far down the folk celebration that I got very in love with the ethnic churches of orthodoxy. And then I started learning a little bit more about those politics and histories. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, no, no, no. I think that's a bit much, actually. <laughs> like a full-blown ethnic, like an actual, like, you know, Ukrainian Orthodox church. Like, I, I don't think I'm down for, like, a Mexican, you know, church. 
I think black Catholic churches, you were saying a separate denomination, like that's interesting within an American context, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's understood that blackness itself is a kind of a dispersed concept. Because I've heard people do the game, and I promise I'm not cross-examining you. I'm just thinking about the people who are always trying to run interference on me. Of Like, well, if we abolish whiteness, does that mean we abolish blackness too? You know, if... Uh, um, no, because whiteness was invented and blackness was invented too, but it also has an actual physical manifestation because I am the descendant of enslaved people. I don't know exactly where I come from. I can't pinpoint where in Africa all of my ancestors came from. So black itself is real. White is not. It's yeah. just not. Oh, exactly. And, you know, I mean... Um, I think there's a room. I'm gonna have. A, I'm gonna be on somebody else's podcast, um, uh, uh, Rod Graham, to talk a bit about you know the the genuine, uh, almost you could say pastoral and political concerns for white identifying people. If we go like fully think of the experiment in which a kind of abolitionist ethic of race emerges, where white identification has to be you know abolished you know under that conception you know i i don't i do think that the idea of blackness and the place for the privileging and centering of blackness would in that idealistic state obviously be different right you know because the reason we say black lives matter now is precisely because they 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 politically don't because of what happened yesterday because of what's going on in trial because of what happened to Breonna Taylor because you know th- these are the reasons we say it if those reasons cease to be real and spreading themselves out systematically well obviously the conversation changes no i mean even within like black activism it's gone from black power to black is beautiful to black lives matter and there'll be another mm-hmm. i think future chorus for the generation that needs it at the time that they need it um but again i i I mean maybe maybe you have a different view i don't know this is making me think of something i said to someone last year that to me like going back to my comment about that i said like black catholics are it feels like a separate denomination it's not because the theology is different i mean that in the sense of just black Catholics have to survive on their own the way that black people have to survive on their own. It's not that we want intentionally to be separate from the church. It's that we were forced to be separate. And so we did our own thing. Um, But I say all that to say that I think here is where I would delineate between Protestants and like historical AME and Catholics, because Hmm. in my mind, Catholics have an easier time Uh, or would have an easier time reconciling because we are one faith. We do have different rights. We are a global church with speaking every language, every color, and whatever. Sure. I really think... (laughs) Du Bois was Catholic. I'm going to call out white American people in general. It's like white people are the ones making this really difficult. Like, we, we could all be together if we really wanted to be. It's just that you don't want to give up whiteness. That is what it is. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, this is, um, I think this is a spiritual challenge. I think this is a call to an examination of conscience. Um, 
and this whiteness to be very clear to to the to the listener who's still on but is maybe seething or taking notes to try and you know i don't uh, hate white people i'm just gonna exactly (laughs) i know you you know you always got to put in that disclaimer And, and for me the disclaimer is the fact that this whiteness this 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 fixation upon whiteness is something that can be performed by people whether or not they are identified by a white establishment as white or not you know and if we like you know go south of the border and we enter into the like 33 category caste system of colonial spain upon people based on land blood religion region all these things including the fights between the iberians not just the portuguese and the in the castilians but all the other you know uh uh people in that region that you can in some sense see the way in which whiteness doesn't need as fixed an identity in fact i go as far as to claim that race itself is not the modern concept of race is not an identity it's not a descriptive theory that says here's how you here's how we describe human beings it's really just um a a power move it simply is an instrument for domination um and it's very it's like capitalism like colonialism and we can go all the way back to ghana on this in terms of the colonial legacy that veneers over the top of that pre-colonial uh legacy and then the kind of post-colonial one right um but uh you know these are things that like sin and like evil and and like the work of satan if i can say it that way um Mm -hmm. they distort goods they take things that are true and they put them at cross purposes with the truth they're not just simple little i stole some bubble gum at the supermarket you know these aren't white lies we're talking about <laughs> the lie I mean, is when white we say that when we when we say that white supremacy is demonic this is what we mean because it's not only depriving people of their lives it's depriving us of relationships mm. um, even to ourselves I'm in, yep to ourselves to each other I mean, even just this question of like, well, what color church do you go to? It's like, it's the wrong, it's the wrong question. Like, why does it matter? We're, we're sacramentally bound together in a mysterious way that none of us are going to understand until the day that we die. Yeah. And we can still see each other uh, in color. We don't have to, yeah. we don't have to lose the... Uh, the obviousness of 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 our of our bodies and how we present to each other and 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 how we look and and of course the fact that how we look it only goes so far but that is part of who we are um and we are allowed to uh to look a certain way and hopefully try to look good maybe and you know that the biggest mistake that i think a lot of people are making right now is the tendency to want to say well i don't see color and we need to be uh color neutral because that's not it's not reality it's not the way god made us um historically it's nonsense it's nonsense now it's just if you're listening to this please stop saying that (laughs) yeah i mean i always say like stevie wonder is, is a blind man uh but he's not colorblind Mm-hmm. And you know we need to be able to see, you know, reality. Uh, I think 
in full color, which forces us, I think, to come up against the, the, the question of race, in fact, emerges from this wide open, in some sense, the crisis of the modern concept of race was that in the same way that like Satan was the angel of light, Lucifer, who fell because of his pride, we could say that the, the modern concept of race looked at the diversity of, 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 the, of, of the human condition beyond its provincial, national, geographic, regional instantiations because of what trade and cross-trade and, and the, 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 the Silk Road and the Spice and all these things, it forced us to see humans, to see anthropology in this global sense. And its response was 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 monstrous. It, 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 its response was to dominate. Um, but we could have a different response. But it doesn't entail going back to this kind of pre-global uh, moment and just seeing things through this myopic, self-imposed, colorblind lens. You know, that's to me, you know, not the right thing. Wow, we've covered so much ground here, Rebecca. I am just so grateful for your time and for your patience with me i've been a bit all over the place i wonder if you could just take us out with um a, a word on on life because that's what you do that's what your work in, is in and you've shared so much of your life but i know you also work in the in in, in the area of, of giving life and bringing in new life of natality of nativity um can you talk a bit about just what gives you life and what brings you life right now I have what what brings me life right now um, I have reignited I think my creativity and doing things and just having hobbies that have no place in my life other than to just give me joy and pleasure versus like trying to figure out how to like hustle something or be about like physical self-improvement or anything like that that is certainly bringing me joy um i have been intentionally spending time um trying to build up some of my relationships um both old and new i've met a lot of very cool people on twitter met you on twitter um, I just had Thank a chat a week ago yeah, on the phone with uh, a ministry friend who I met through Twitter and we were discussing, um, he's about to give some talks on encouraging people to come back to mass. And he and I had a very long discussion about why that's such a difficult concept for me right now as a woman and as a black person, but that, you know, and has really like been a friend. Um, and I think those types of conversations and relationships are certainly giving me life. Um, my clients give me life because life goes on. Um, it's such, it's like such a gift to walk with people because doula work is really just accompanying people through this season of their life. And it's a very vulnerable time, mm -hmm. but it's also a very, um, it, it is a creative time where like, they're open to new ideas, they're contemplating their own upbringings, how they want to bring up their children. And it's just like, it's just a gift to be able to be present and to support people um, 
and I love it. I'll probably do it until the day that I die because it does bring me joy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1, and special thanks to Rebecca Christian. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Whippenstock Publishers, Give Us This Day, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Where Peter Is, The Juan Diego Network, and Commonweal Magazine. And special thanks once again to our featured sponsor for today, Black Catholic Messenger. And don't forget to listen to the Black Catholic Messenger show, their very own podcast. The friends of the show are the Commonweal Podcast, the Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosli, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Cush Classics. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to all of our wonderful sponsors and our featured sponsor, and also to these great friends of the show. The friends of the show, of course, are shows and podcasts and media that I myself listen to and uh, in some cases have even appeared on or taken part with. And uh, next week, as we'll hear more about very soon, we have Gloria Purvis from The Gloria Purvis Show at America Media uh, coming on to Folk Phenomenology. You will also find a tip jar, and uh, all of the tips that I receive during this season, I will be setting aside, and have been setting aside, for what I hope to be season two. Please share this episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and follow us on social media. Uh, Be sure to mention the show as much as you can and as you're willing to, uh, publicly if you will, and also tell your friends. We are now at the midpoint of folk phenomenology, having crossed from episode 10 into next week's episode 11 with Gloria Purvis. Even though we're midway, uh, there is still so much to share and there's still so much to say. And I really do hope and I really do implore you to continue sharing and continue listening and continue supporting folk phenomenology now as we move into the second half of season one. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Sam Rocha. To find out more about me and my work, please feel free to visit samrocha.com. Next week, we have Gloria Purvis joining Folk Phenomenology. It is such a joy to share this interview with you. As I said in the inaugural episode on the interview itself, it was really my interview with Gloria that gave me the sense of confidence, the sense that the format of the interview was something that I could do as an interviewer. And most importantly, it was in that interview where I first met Gloria and where we began uh, what has now become our friendship. This episode is really, it's really just a chat between two friends on issues of the day. And one of those issues of the day uh, was the ongoing trial of Derek Chauvin. Still a week before 
the jury would find him guilty in all three counts of murder and well before he would be sentenced to over 22 years in prison. I must also say that I'm recording this segment sitting in the Minneapolis-St. Paul region, even more aware perhaps of the significance of these events and of these conversations. And, well, I'm not sure what to make of them, but I do know that this is not the time to forget those events, and this is not the time to act as if legal justice immediately entails moral justice. And so I think that it's especially crucial that we listen to these conversations, not only in their convivial and friendly presentation, but also concerning their context and the way that context continues to remain and even haunt us in our present. Because delighting in the world doesn't mean turning our face to the darkness or running away from those things that we need to face. To delight in the world is to delight in the real, to imagine the real, and in that spirit to say, Delexit Mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting out of the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. you find it, you find it, you find it, you find it. Through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty 